Welcome back to Uprising. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. The issue of national security is constantly invoked by politicians and the media as justifications for war and surveillance. Since the September 11th attacks, the U.S. has launched endless wars that have ironically made us less safe and built an unprecedented network of intrusive surveillance. Today, as part of an ongoing series of interviews that I did with a number of experts, journalists, authors, and academics, we'll explore what the U.S.'s national security policies have really amounted to. The interviews were produced by Brave New Films, headed by the acclaimed filmmaker Robert Greenwald, and are called the Henry A. Wallace National Security Forum. Henry A. Wallace was the 33rd Vice President of the United States. He served under FDR during World War II and ran for the presidency on, a, on the Progressive Party ticket in 1948. He was an agriculturalist, an economist, an author, and a businessman, and was known as the champion of the common man in the struggle against the moneyed elites for control of government and the planet's resources. On today's episode of the Henry A. Wallace National Security Forum, we present my interview on the costs of war with Linda Bilmes. She's a lecturer at Harvard University focusing on public policy, budgeting, and public finance. War is expensive, both in human and financial costs. But how much money are we actually spending? Welcome to the Henry A. Wallace National Security Forum. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. The financial costs of the U.S.'s wars are discussed in numbers so big, it's hard to wrap your head around them. And it's not just the cost of deployments and weapons, but the long-lasting costs of veterans' care that many policymakers don't take into account. Linda Bilmes is the Daniel Patrick Moynihan Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at Harvard University and co-author of The Three Trillion Dollar War, The True Cost of the Iraq Conflict. She now joins me to dive into these numbers. Welcome to the program, Linda. Thank you very much. Well, first, when politicians tell us how much a war has cost taxpayers, do they tell us everything? Are there hidden costs that uh, we don't usually see in obvious ways? Well, there are a number of ways of tracking costs, and what Congress currently votes on are simply the short-term upfront costs of fighting a war, so that means the, the military forces and weapons used at the moment. But there are very extensive long-term costs, particularly the cost of caring for veterans. And veterans' costs actually go on for a very long time. For example, the peak year for paying for World War I veterans' disability benefits was in 1969, and the peak year for paying for World War II veterans' disability benefits was in 1986, and the peak year for paying for Vietnam uh, disability benefits, we, we haven't reached it yet. There's also the costs of uh not just physical care, but mental health care, uh, particularly when we know soldiers are coming home with intense trauma and, and incidents of PTSD. What about the cost of mental health care? During previous wars, those who have returned have had mental health issues, and we heard about shell shock after World War I, for example. But what's different this time is that you have a much, much larger number of troops who are returning who are survivors. Roughly speaking, of the half of veterans who have come home and been approved to receive disability benefits to date, about a third of them have been diagnosed with mental health conditions. What about the loss of productivity from disabled veterans returning home, both to the U.S. economy and also to individual families where a main income earner might uh, lose their income because of disability? There are many costs that are actually borne by individuals or by communities 
or by families. So, for example, many of those who have fought in the current Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts have been drawn from the reserves and from the National Guard. And many of these were self-employed or were mid-career individuals who had to leave their jobs. They came back uh, over the past few years when the economy was very bad and their jobs were no longer there or their small businesses went under. Now, in the case of disabled veterans per se, those who are seriously disabled, in at least a third of the cases, there is an individual in the family, a parent or a spouse or someone in the family who leaves their employment or, or leaves their full-time employment in order to become a caregiver. And all of those are costs. They're real costs. They're just not costs that the government pays. And so the government doesn't actually calculate them. What about the other aspect of the costs of war that aren't taken into account, which is increasing interest payments on the monies that we borrow to pay for war? The question of how we finance a war is a very important question. In previous wars, as well as during the Cold War, taxes have been increased and there have been a, a series of, of, of current use methods of financing which have contributed to the way that we have paid for war. In this case, taxes were actually cut twice in 2001 and 2003 very significantly at the same time that we invaded Afghanistan and then Iraq, and Texas have stayed low throughout the wars. So that means that the entire $2 trillion or so that has already been spent has been borrowed, which means that we have to repay that money with interest. And this is unprecedented in the history of the United States. The only time that we have actually borrowed for the entire financing cost of a war was during the Revolutionary War when the colonies borrowed from France. Now, aren't we just passing on the costs of our current wars to the future generation? Those of us who have not fought in the wars have not only not fought, but we also have not paid for these wars. So I haven't paid a penny of my taxes for these wars, and no one who is currently a taxpayer has actually contributed to the wars. We have actually transferred the full cost of these wars in terms of what has already been paid as well as what is owed in the future to the next generation. So what is the difference then between the cost that we are told, say, the Iraq war might have cost us versus the real cost when you do take into account all of these numbers? Well, if you look at the top line costs of actually fighting the wars up until now, it's somewhere between one and a half and two trillion dollars in the way that the government counts it. But if you include the long-term veterans cost and economic cost and the structural increases in the Defense Department as a result of the wars, it's somewhere between four and six trillion dollars. Are there secondary impacts to the U.S.'s economy from waging the war that we're also not accounting for? Well, there are several major long-term consequences, economic consequences of being engaged in a war. And in this case, one of the consequences of the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was that at the time, oil prices had been stable at about $25 a barrel for more than 20 years. And the invasion of Iraq was one of a number of factors that contributed to a very, very rapid rise within three years of the oil price, which peaked four years later at $140 a barrel. And that incredibly rapid rise in the price of oil was one of the factors that contributed to the Federal Reserve increasing liquidity in the economy, which of course was one of the factors that contributed to the housing crisis. 
It's difficult to say that they're causal because there are many factors that are involved, for example, in the price of a barrel of oil. It's a combination of supply and demand. There are short-term and long-term issues. But there is no doubt that at the time that we invaded Iraq, one of the contributing factors to the very rapid price in oil was the U.S. invasion. And I think that the general transfer of a huge amount of resource into a war economy, of course, is less productive than taking two trillion dollars and investing it in those things that have a greater multiplier for the United States, for example, infrastructure and education. Now, let's talk about the military's budget. When the Pentagon uh, requests funding, we get the sense that they never feel like there's enough funding, that the Pentagon always needs more funding. And yet, uh, in those funding requests, uh, we don't account for the hidden costs that we've just been discussing. How can more awareness of these hidden costs uh, be a way to argue that uh, uh, we shouldn't be diverting so much of our uh, money into wars and more into those constructive things you were just saying. War spending is extra to the basic Pentagon budget. So in addition to the $2 trillion that we've spent on the war so far, and in addition to all of the accrued veterans' costs, trillions of dollars that are still payable, we also have a trillion dollars in the base budget of the Defense Department. It is very, very difficult to actually look at the Defense Department budget. It actually has flunked its financial audit every year for the past 20 years, and it's the only department in the U.S. government that, that routinely flunks its audit. So you can't really look at it in terms of the financial structure of where money goes. It also doesn't do a robust cost accounting, which means it's very difficult to, to untangle where all of the money actually goes in terms of the different activities, because the costs are buried in thousands of line items in a very, very large and cumbersome budget. At the same time, the Defense Department has actually advocated a number of cuts that Congress has not been willing to grant them. So you have the combination of a very poor accounting system, a very poor system of budgeting, enormous amount of complexity, a lack of cost accounting, and a lack of willingness in Congress to go along with cuts even where the Pentagon actually has itemized them. Linda Bilmes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. On the next episode of the Henry A. Wallace National Security Forum, Noam Chomsky will help us answer the big question, why does the United States seem driven to create an empire? Expansion is the path to security. If you want to be secure, you have to control everything else. These are the standard views of uh, what are called statesmen, uh, people who are committed to uh, defending and expanding uh, powerful interests, uh, powerful dominant domestic interests. Uh, and uh, that leads to the thrust for empire and the justification of that thrust as defensive. And that's another episode of the Henry A. Wallace National Security Forum produced by Brave New Films. My guest, Linda Bilmes, is a lecturer at Harvard University focusing on public policy, budgeting, and public finance. And next Tuesday, we will play the episode featuring my interview with Noam Chomsky on American Empire. This is Uprising. We'll be back after this break.